You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. Hi, everyone. So this is the three-year anniversary of The Compass. Thank you all so much for listening and for supporting this podcast and the mission behind it for so long. Or if you've joined more recently, thank you for giving it a shot. It's an important conversation. Things will be slowing down over the next few months after I have my baby. My due date is August 22nd. But please know that I have some things in the works for after I take a break, and the archives are always there for you to go back through. I've had the privilege of having these intimate, personal conversations with so many wonderful artists, and they're all there for you when you need some inspiration or to feel a bit more connected to other people who are living a creative life. This project has changed my life many times over, and I'm grateful to everyone who listens or has been involved. My guest today is Laura Ramaday. Laura is an actor, producer, and one of the founders of the theater company Lesser America. I've always admired her work ethic, and her hands are in so many different interesting projects around New York. I met her about seven years ago when she did a show with my close friend Nate Miller, who was on episode 37, I believe. Nate, Laura, and their friend Dan Avalis went on to start their theater company shortly, uh, shortly after that show, and it's been really incredible to watch them build that together. You can check out Lesser America's upcoming production of Agnes by Katya McMullen at 59 East 59th in September. I believe it's running from the 8th to the 29th. Laura is producing and acting in that show, so check it out. Or you can see what else she's working on at lauraramaday.com. I hope you enjoy the 124th episode of The Compass. First question that I always start with is how do you keep from going to the dark side as an artist? Or I guess I usually say how do you try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? That's a great question. Um, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I definitely hang out in the dark side sometimes. For me, I think the way that I figured out to keep my head above water is by being the kind of artist who has to be in service of others. I have always been like a team sport player and I found that like whatever competition or narcissism or ego was driving my acting career uh, at any point sort of ran out of fumes. Like that part of what drives me certainly exists, but uh, it's gross and it doesn't actually propel me you know, it's, like, the difference between, like, good energy and, like, bad, you know, sugar energy. I don't know. I'm trying to think of some kind of, like, bad, like, food metaphor. But I find that when I'm in a bad place or I'm really frustrated or feeling powerless, the thing that gets me out of that is to be able to help other people contend with that. I think that's why I gravitated to producing. It kind of started as a selfish endeavor, like, a way to make work for me to be in and now it's such a big part of my life I think because all of the things that are infuriating about being an actor and being an artist of any kind is it's a lot about sacrificing power and just staying vulnerable to this industry that is truly abusive (laughs) Um, so being able to be a producer and to be able to create space for other artists helps me navigate the frustration for myself even if it's not a direct application of oh, I'm producing something and I'm in it, like sometimes it's that, but even when I'm not involved necessarily as a a performer in any capacity or as an artist even, I'm just a brass tacks producer, I like being able to create a safe space and help other people deal with that. Um, And it also just helps give perspective to be on all sides of it, you know? I think you just have to keep keep a clear eye 
on things because it's so easy to take the struggle of being an artist personally and to romanticize your suffering, yeah. you know, so and easy. to be like, oh, well, I have to suffer because artists are supposed to. And I'm, I 100% think that's bullshit. And I don't <laughs> ascribe to that. I, yeah, I just don't think that you yeah. have to suffer to be like good at your art. So I agree. So for me, it's, yeah, it's about like, letting go of whatever self-punishing thing I may be doing that's bringing me to the dark place where I'm like, oh, it's my fault that I'm not more successful or doing exactly the kind of work I want to be doing or just the struggle of being an artist. Uh, it's about letting go of like my ego in that situation and then, yeah, bringing it back to other people rather than myself. Yeah, it's interesting that that like, self-abuse is a form of ego and we don't mm-hmm. think we don't think of it that way yeah it's it's absolutely but you're really making everything about yourself yeah i think i think depressive tendency i think a lot of mental health is off uh, like mental health issues uh can be perpetuated through uh looking too inward sometimes like taking things personally or being selfish about your feelings frankly and i don't mean to diminish mental health issues and say that if you just stop thinking about yourself will go away but there is a dynamic there that when I'm feeling awful if I just stop making it about me you know whether that's just like how I need to reassure myself or if I'm just actively reaching out and providing to other people that that just naturally resolves a lot of that gunk yeah so when did you first kind of get started down that producing path was that with lesser america or was that before that it was before that um i was a producer for a long time before i knew what producing was (laughs) and certainly before i admitted to myself that i was a producer uh i think the first time i produced anything was in high school i did this like student production with a friend where we like got a little tiny like thousand dollar grant and did a lanford wilson play and $1,000 is pretty good for It's a lot school. of money, yeah. We had the space because it was at the school. Like, that was, like, That's more money good. than we needed, you know, at the time. Uh, but And where did you grow up? Sorry, side Denver. Denver. So this Denver. was at Denver School okay. of the Arts, uh, that particular production. And I was just doing it because it was, like, you did a senior project. It was sort of part of a thing you were supposed to do. Uh, and then in college, I had a friend ask me to produce a play that he'd written, and to also be in it. And I was like, I don't really know what producing means. And he was like, neither do I, but in order to apply for this student production grant, (laughs) another $1,000 at NYU this time, uh, you had to have a producer director, like you had to have a team, including a producer. And I said, he was like, I think you might be good at whatever that is. And I was like, whatever that is, we'll figure it out, sure. Had a terrible time. It was a very challenging well, project. Because I didn't know what you were Because I didn't know what I was do. doing. And I didn't know that producing is so much about... Like, it's, it's again, it's about making space for other people. It's about, like, creating an environment that is, like, healthy to work in. And it yeah. just was really, really challenging because we were all just sort of terrified, I think, uh, in that process. So I finished that and was like, we'll never do that again. Never producing. I'm an actor. I'm only an actor. And then I got out of school and I did a web series, uh, similar kind of thing. Some friends were like, let's make something together. And I was like the person to speak up and say, okay, emails, fundraising, what's next steps? How do we do this? You know, just naturally being proactive about making the thing happen. And then I'm forgetting the timeline and all of this, but around that time, uh, another friend approached me and wanted to do a sort of group producing effort for a cast ourselves in a play kind of thing it was a short play night and he was like I want to act in it I want to bring these people on board I want you on board and we'd all act in it and also produce it and I was like sure and we got this incredible team of writers to hand over their little 10 minute plays it was Becca Brunstetter Amy Herzog Liz Merriweather Lucy Alibar Daniel Talbot Sam Foreman is that everybody I mean, that's a great group. It's incredible. (laughs) I mean, the show did very well just because we got these, like, very hot up-and-coming writers to just let us do their 10-minute plays. And then if they weren't already established, they all had these huge moments right afterwards. Like, (laughs) Lucy got her Sundance grant and then was nominated for Beast of the Southern Wild, like, two years later. Oh, my God. Uh, 
uh, Liz Merriweather, who I never even interacted with. She just like let us do the play. She was like in India at the time. <laughs> so she doesn't even know who I am. But I think No Strings Attached came out like a year later and yeah. then New Girl was right after. So these people like erupted, um, but they were very hot in the scene at the time. So the show did well. And this playwright came to see it and asked, uh, Dan Abelis was also in it. He wasn't producing, but he was an actor in it. He ultimately cast me and Dan in a play that he was doing at Theater for the New City. Which I think with Nate. Yes, which which was also where we met Nate Miller. He was ultimately cast in it as well. And the three of us, me, Nate, and Dan, plus this playwright, Johnny, um, Johnny Blitzstein, who is no longer part of Lesser America, but was there at the beginning. Um, we did this play together, had a great time. Me and Dan and Nate became like best friends. I was already very good friends with Dan, but Nate kind of just like came into the fold. Mm. And, and then Theater for the New City really liked our show, and they really liked that we drew a crowd, because that show did well in their like festival that we were a part of. And they offered us a residency, and it was the first time I think they'd offered that. Like it was there, it was an inaugural residency for Theater for the New City, and it was before we even had a company. They just said, "Do you want a residency?" Yeah, that's so interesting. And we were like, "What does that mean?" (laughs) And ultimately, it meant free rehearsal space, free performance space, but we had split the box office with them. Um, And we were like, "Sure," and kind of like threw together a company because we had this huge resource and Johnny had another play that he wanted us all to be in and we sort of talked through you know what is a what does a theater company want to be <laughs> if we're creating a theater company what should it be and we talked about companies like Labyrinth and Steppenwolf that are these actor ensemble driven production companies and we were like that's us and we sort of talked about our aesthetic and it's you know we had sort of in the back of our minds I think the idea that the company could continue but in all honesty none of us really knew if it would you know like we were like let's just do this because we're young and you can just slap a name on something and say that it exists we have this one opportunity yes so like we have a resource why not like let's put ourselves in a play you know and uh it was so hard it was such a disaster in many ways and went much better than it should have, you know, for, for what it was. Um, and then the, we kept doing it. We kept, we continued the residency. We ended up being there for four years. And oh my God, I can't believe it's been that long. Yeah, well, it's been the company's now seven years old. We oh did that res. I know time flies. <laughs> believe me, I I don't know where I am at any given moment. Uh, but yeah, so we were there for four years, and we ultimately left. We did a show at um, the Barrow Group during our residency there and then we did a show at Rattlestick right after we finished the residency and then about the same time we signed with Cherry Lane to start a new residency for two years uh, which just wrapped up and we'll be at 5090's 59 in the fall oh great yeah and somewhere in the process I think between like oh let's throw together this theater company and then the theater company becoming like a real known entity I sort of admitted to myself that I was a producer and Mm -hmm learned what that meant, you know, and obviously my understanding of it now is much more comprehensive and there's so many different kinds of producers. Um, but I've, I've, I went from secretly being a producer who really just did it to be in stuff and to cast myself to being, okay, I'm a producer. This is something that I am. And then to being like, I'm an actor producer. Like that's my little identifier to now being like more producer than an actor probably and feeling really okay about that. So it's interesting how things evolve, (laughs) you know? Do you feel like, um, have there been any resources along the way that you've found really helpful or do you feel like you've, you guys mostly kind of just felt it out as you went along or mentors or, um, I mean, everything we do has just been figuring it out as we go. Yeah. There's certainly like specific resources, you know, there's fiscal sponsors that you can work with if you want to start a project. Like we worked with Fractured Atlas and we've certainly been lucky in terms of real estate and resources, meaning Theater for the New City was such an enabling uh, opportunity because we wouldn't have been able to put on a play without that kind of... Yeah, that cost. That cost is so big and so prohibitive. Like it's kind of impossible to produce showcases under the equity code because they just changed this uh, where they took 
the rental fee, like space is no longer a part of the budget cap, but there is a budget cap on how much you're supposed to spend on a showcase. Mm -hmm. And we always stayed well below it. But the reason we were able to pull that off is because we had this sort of subsidized space at, right. at Theater for the New City. And then we had similar things happen where like Rattlestick, the way we got in there is there was a cancellation. So we kind of named our price and they were like, sure. And it was so much cheaper than it should have been to rent Rattlestick. And a uh, similar thing with the Barrow Group, they had a cancellation and we just sort of <laughs> snuck in there under <laughs> what they usually charge. So I think for us, one of the things that's helped us out most has been our agility and flexibility and kind of the fact that we're like figuring it out as we go. Like we've never really put together a rigid season. Uh, we are producing under seasonal code now, but that basically doesn't exist after this show. <laughs> Equity has changed a lot of things Yeah, recently. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, it doesn't matter anymore because they just changed how, they, how it works. Um, but yeah, like a, it's just been kind of like stuff has just come along as we've gone. And there have been certainly moments where all of us have been freaking out and, you know, wondering how we we're going to pull the thing off. You know, we before we did Carnival Kids, I was really stressing out looking at that budget and knowing that we didn't have the money to make it across the finish line and was like, where is this? Like, what's going to, what are we going to do? You know, just kind of like thinking about it. And we randomly got an anonymous $5,000 donation, which is huge for us. And I still don't know where oh it God. came from. Yeah. Um, if you're out there, please <laughs> identify yourself. I, uh, I even like wow. called the financial firm that like put the donation in and was like, can you tell me who this is from? And they didn't. Um, and Did you guys put out like a fundraising call or anything or they just happened yeah, to like be we like... weren't quite like close enough to be like really in like panic mode. We were like throwing a party and we were, this is before we were really in like grant writing mode. So mm. there wasn't a lot of grant money that we were, had access to because we were so young and you have to have a certain level of established track record in order to get any grant money. And, um, you know, I'm sure we would have figured out something else if that hadn't happened, but it has certainly been miracles like that along the way that have just kind of like kept it going. Um, and every time we do a show, I'm just surprised, <laughs> you know, I'm just surprised when people show up and yeah, surprised yeah. when like, that just happened. again. Yeah. And there's also like plenty of flip sides to that. Plenty of like, Oh God, like just awful things that we yeah. have been through together. You know, that's a part of it too. For sure. You just, we've just kind of always made it work. How have you guys worked through any like rough patches together as a, as a group, like working that closely with hmm. a small team? Have you found any like ways to improve your communication or like get through those tough spots? It's, you know, at this point with us, it's a lot like family. Like we've been through so much and honestly, sometimes the way we just get through stuff is to like get drunk and argue, <laughs> you know, like we'll have a big blowout once every year or so. Um, they're not actually that bad, but you know, we'll know when there's tension and we're not addressing it cause it'll come out and, you know, sort of bust at the seams a little bit. Um, I think for us, it's, you know, we don't do this because it makes us any money. <laughs> literally it costs us money we usually end up like you know buying coffees and pizzas and just like throwing in little things right, outside right. of the budget that it, it's not you know we've we allocate money to pay ourselves but it often turns into contingency and then just goes to whatever needs to be paid for right so the times that we do have difficult conversations it usually comes back to us saying out loud to each other that the friendship is more important than the company you know and that's true with us like none of us have grand enough ambitions with this company for it to be worth destroying our relationships. And yeah. that has carried us through and also made it difficult to have conversations with the company sometimes too, because I think, you know, we don't necessarily want this to turn into an institution someday, you know, like we don't, I think, see it evolving into the next whatever, you know? Um, so we have to have periodic check-ins about why do we do this? Is it worth it? How do we get better at this? Right. And how do we keep an eye out for each other so we're still having fun? Because yeah. we won't do it if it's not fun, you know? Are, like, you, are you still invested or is it just a habit? 
Yeah, exactly. We have to sort of check in about that. And full disclosure, our last show was really hard. Um, it just was a difficult producing endeavor because it was a script that was very open for interpretation. So like tech was a different process than it sometimes is because it was just more demanding and there was more to figure out in the tiny amount of time that we allow for tech. And I was in it and was trying to sort of isolate myself as an actor uh, and be less involved with production, but that sucked and I'm never gonna <laughs> try and do that again. <laughs> like the intention was noble and in that it was like, let me just do this one thing and you guys handle production, but I hold the budget. So our production manager was like still coming to me for clearance on stuff or just wanting to loop me into these difficult conversations about we right. need money for such and such, or we're struggling with this thing. Can you come in? And, you know, like I usually play a certain mama bear kind of role in the production realm and I was trying not to be involved, but it really just made it worse because it felt suddenly like, me and Dan and Nate weren't on the same team or we weren't there for each other the way we are at 2 a.m. after production meeting. You know, like that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. we really are in the trenches with our artists and with each other. And at the end of the night, it's us three there. And uh, it wasn't, I was like trying to change that or something. And I just felt like they, they we, we all just felt sort of disconnected from each other. It was just a hard show. So we had some really, difficult conversations after it about like do we want to keep doing this how do we keep doing it you know we need to allocate money in the budget for <laughs> proper labor because we can't like we're getting older too so we can't be up on ladders at three in the morning you know like right. what you're we can't to do. make up for all the things that need to happen to make a play with sweat equity the way we could when we were 25 <laughs> you know <laughs> which is around the time we started so yeah so I don't know. I don't know what the future holds, but for us, it's just about, it's just about being really honest about that part and prioritizing the things that are most important. Um, do you mind if we talk a little bit about day jobs and such and hmm. balancing the Absolutely. equation? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Finding enough time to spend on something that may not be totally. paying you or paying you <laughs> much. Yeah. And then, um, like, survival jobs? Like, how you've patchworked that together? Yeah, patchwork is a great word, because <laughs> that's totally what it is. Um, Over the years? Yeah, I feel very fortunate about where I am now and, and what I've sort of worked up to. It still feels crazy all the time. Um, although, I, I might feel more insane if I was working a 9-to-5. Like, I think I maybe would go more nuts with a totally steady thing. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I think that's what my body, <laughs> like, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think the one thing I wish that someone had said to me when I was just getting out of school, uh, or at least when I was in school, you know, there's, there's sort of this cultish, I, I rail against this all the time. There's a cultish mentality that is fed to actors that is like, your acting is your whole life and like there shouldn't be a fallback because you're an artist and like sacrifice everything for your art and the same way I'm against like suffering as art I'm against just the abuse of actors like I truly think that that mentality is unhealthy I think it breeds a lot of really unhappy people it breeds bitterness and it frankly devalues actors you know we all get into this headspace where we're like I'll work for free I'll do anything just yeah, get yeah. me seen that we're supposed to bow down at the feet of this industry that does not value us and there's it's not productive and um well in the structure of like even if you are auditioning a lot that it just requires you to drop everything and to be completely yes. available. The nature like, of that is really messed up. If you have and to I say no once. Yeah, you're a horrible person. Yeah, it would take so much to really shift that in a meaningful way for the whole industry. But as an individual artist, I think the control you can have is just like letting go of the idea that uh, that you're supposed to just like worship at the feet of this career that may or may not be coming at some point right. and that you are um if you just hold on it's like it's like this terrible waiting game of like who can ha have their fingers on the edge of the cliff the longest 
Like if you can survive all of the bullshit, then you'll someday have a career. That's sort of the feeling that's out there. Yeah. And that feeling of waiting is just the worst. It's awful. And the feeling of the waiting and, and giving someone else power to tell you you're allowed to work, you're allowed mm-hmm. to create. And the cool thing about now is we're in a climate where it's, it's so much more welcome and valued and, and cool, frankly, to like make stuff, you know, here we are. Yeah. Um, so I, what I wished someone had like gotten into my head when I was in school is like other passions because I have friends who are really brilliant photographers or graphic designers or <laughs> producers. Like it sort of happened for me organically after a number of years that this other skill set I have could work in tandem with my acting career and it wouldn't mean that was a failure if I'm building this other career and I have friends who came out of school and immediately started you know getting into the headshot business and now have really comfortable make a really comfortable living with this other passion and then also still work as actors and I think finding that is really important because even if you have successes as an actor they can always go away and there's always space between things. Even people who have incredible careers, there's still a waiting game and there's still time between things. And yeah. if it's writing, if it's filmmaking, if it, you know, like a lot of writer or a lot of actors cross over into writing or producing or that kind of, you know, there's creative marriages that make a lot of sense. But I think embracing those passions and then finding the like day job grind that works into that is like where you find the healthy sweet spot. For me, it was a long road. I did every, everything to make money. I had so many stupid NYU <laughs> student loans. <laughs> I still have them. Oh, I, um, I worked as a temp. I, I think the only industry I haven't done is retail, but I, I worked as a temp. I worked as a tutor in school. I did that for years out of school. I worked um, in catering. I obviously was a bartender for a lot of years. That was like a sort of step up I like invested in bartending school I'm almost like ashamed to say that <laughs> but I like spent a couple hundred bucks on bartending school to basically like learn how to bartend and then learn how to lie on a resume and get myself a job bartending yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I did which was great because that's like as good a money as you can make in a short amount of time you know like I could basically keep my days free for acting or showing up at random auditions but could also like pay my New York bills but then that really burned me out and I didn't have like a passion for bartending it just was like oh this is livable money right and I enjoy I love that I like have the skills of bartending it's fun but um I hated the customer service part of it by the time I left it's so brutal it's so did you have to do the really demoralizing nights too yeah I worked a couple jobs where it was really late um the I last could. bartending job I had was great because I think the latest we closed was two but mm. I definitely I worked at a place before that that would close at like two or three, but then we had to do checkout and it was huge. So you'd basically have to like wait in line with your bank and have it checked by a manager. So you'd finish and you'd close the bar, you'd do all your cleanup and you'd do all your breakdown and then you'd do your math and then you'd wait in line and then they'd sign off on your bank (laughs) and then it'd be like four in the morning. And I would like leave at sunrise all the time. And that's like, how do you And some of the bartenders, yeah, a lot of the bartenders at that job would leave and go to after hours bars and like keep drinking. And that's how that, that's how you like lose sight of the stuff you actually want. It's just getting stuck in a pattern and a certain kind of income and, and frankly, a lifestyle that like you can't sustain anything else with. Yeah. So that one's tricky. But, um, after I quit bartending, I was very fortunate in that, uh, David Barcat's at, uh, had put together the American Playwriting Foundation and he asked me to come on board and to organize their submissions process and be, like, you know, sort of be the, <laughs> the staff for this you, brand new organization. Did you already know him from somewhere? Or? Yes, we had met through Labyrinth Theater Company. So I interned there during and out of school for okay. a couple years and worked up to being a production assistant. And I worked with Philip Seymour Hoffman when I was there and worked with David Barcats and... David created the foundation in honor of film and staffed it and filled it, you know, put all the, all the artistic advisors and all of the people on the selection committee are friends of Phil's. So he brought me on cause I had worked with Phil and he knew he liked me and like respected my hustle <laughs> <laughs> as it were. And when he first asked me, I thought it was like, 
will you read scripts for 20 bucks a pop or what? You know, I was like, sure, anything. I'll volunteer my time to help out this foundation. And then through our conversations, it became clear that I was the staff member and (laughs) I got to like build this, you know, submissions process for this award sort of from scratch, which was really wonderful. And is kind of the like, I don't like to refer to it as a day job because it's so much more than that to me. Like what the award does and what it stands for and who it's, dedicated to means so much more than you know any uh bartending job certainly ever did (laughs) but yeah like for me that was the sort of that's the payoff to this other passion I have is you know it's producing which really is to me about uh, like shepherding and supporting artists and work and obviously developing plays and scripts and that just crossed over into something that paid (laughs) which is so cool um and then I do other things too I've I've gotten into communication training which is something that my mom brought me under like brought me into she's a an executive coach and she does seminars and training courses with like government agencies that are about presentation skills or different kinds of yeah there's all kinds of different companies I I'm now working with a company that a theater director friend founded five or six years ago so that plus the foundation plus whatever acting work <laughs> may or may not yeah. come along at, at random moments sort of cobbles together to add up to paying my bills. But it's cra- it can be crazy. Like, I have cycled through so many different jobs and lost so many of that. You know, I've been fired and whatever from jobs that I obviously didn't care about <laughs> and like needed <laughs> to be fired from. Um, that the prospect of like not knowing where my next paycheck is going to come from is doesn't feel like scary anymore because I've been through it so many times. Certainly, I don't want to <laughs> jinx myself because I'm in a good position now, but um, I've been lucky in that I've been able to cobble together things that I cared about in addition to the art stuff. Have you ever gotten to a place where you're like, I just, I've overscheduled myself. I'm going to oh, burn yeah. myself out. Like the requirement, oh, the yes. core requirements of the number of hours I need to work to pay my bills. Plus the number of hours I've committed to, to do this thing that I really want to do is too much. Absolutely. I sort of live in that place. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, yeah. Uh, when I first got out of school, it really was, I, I, I'm, I did that a lot where like literally it wasn't even, cause now I'm a. I mostly work from home. I'm like a freelancer. Like I make my own time. Um, So when I get there, a lot of times what happens is I'm like, well, I guess I'm staying up till two to do this right now, or I'm blowing off social plans or whatever. It's usually pretty balanced and I can like manage it. But there are times when I'm like, Oh God, like especially this summer with family and friends, like there's so many things to do that are fun that I've been like, I don't have time for this. Like I was with my family in Pennsylvania this weekend. and was like, I need to be sending emails. Like I can't be here right now, you know, but you figure it out. Um, I think what I did early on that was frustrating is, you know, I would take all of these jobs. I had up to eight jobs at one point. Like, oh my God. I know it sounds, I sort of like, <laughs> I added it up because I was like, this is nuts. It wasn't really that many jobs, but it was like, I worked for three different catering companies. Cause if you work for <laughs> catering companies, you have to like work for a bunch. Cause they'll only send you like a gig or two every right, right, once right. in a while. It's like the same with temp agencies. Exactly. You have to like double down so that it actually adds up to enough shifts. And I also was like working the box office at Atlantic. And I was also like interning at Labyrinth. And I was also like, it just was doing all these things. And hilariously, all of them were like flexible in that if something came up, I could like give away a shift and be ready for an audition. But it didn't like add up to like enough money. You know what I mean? So I was just constantly adding more shifts so that I just was fully booked out and wasn't, didn't really have time or energy to do any of the stuff you have to do as a young actor to like get any kind of traction. Cause I didn't even have agents at that point. So nobody was like sending me out on auditions. I was supposed to be going to EPAs. I was supposed to be going to one-on-one, but who can afford to pay, you know, with NYU student loans, how can you afford to pay to have like a casting director meet you? You know, just that was, that was really overwhelming when I first got out and frustrating. Those are the moments that I was like mad at anyone with money, (laughs) you know, just like bitter, but yeah, enough years of that. And you, you know, I figured out bartending or other ways to 
maximize the amount of money you make in a short amount of time and build up some income. Um, we don't have to talk about this, but mm. I, I guess I'm not sure what I want to ask about it. When you quit bartending and mm-hmm. you had that whole open letter. Yeah. We could have absolutely. I love about being harassed by a a customer. Yeah, what was that like to get that that letter you wrote? It just was really strange. Randomly, it just went viral. Yeah, I, uh, which was kind of amazing. I, I mean, a a terrible reason to have something go viral, but yeah, but you know, obviously created like a change in your life. It did. It was. It was very much like a potent moment of energy. And the viralness was just, like, a weird byproduct. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I hated bartending by the time that happened. I You've been doing it a long time. I've been doing it a long time. I was at the best job I had ever had bartending, meaning it was a small menu. It was generally decent clientele. I had a lovely, lovely manager who really cared about me and my art and stuff. And I had friends at the bar. Like, I had worked so many places and deliberately never made friends. Right. You know what I mean? Like I kept a distance. I didn't go out drinking with them because I didn't yeah. want to get sucked into that lifestyle and to walking, wandering away from my dreams, you know? And the people at that restaurant were so great that I just became friends with them despite my efforts not to, you know? So it was a great environment, but I was, I just, um, was, I was so burnt out and even the tiniest infraction, you know, the tiniest thing that a customer would do that was rude would like ruin my night, you know, like you get so disrespected in any service role. And, you know, bartenders are like top of the food chain as far as that goes. And it still was, it was sexual harassment. It was condescension. It was dealing with drunk people who are literally babies. You know, it was, it just was exhausting. And I didn't like myself when I was bartending, you know what I mean? Like, I would see myself get mad and turn into this like mean person, you know, like I was, I just didn't like who I was in that environment and I knew I had to get out of there. And I think I even had told my manager, like, I don't know when, but I think I have to stop doing this. Like we had a moment where we were working together and I don't even remember what happened, but he said something to me and I snapped at him. And he was like, meet me downstairs and took me into his office. And he was like, you cannot speak to me that way. And I burst into tears because I, he was right. And I like was a, the ugliest version of myself, just like sassing back to my manager about something really stupid, you know? Uh-huh. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I don't know who I am. Like, I'm not that I'm way, not you know? Yeah. So I, he knew that I needed to like leave. And um, I just hadn't figured out like how to jump ship. I hadn't, I didn't have a backup plan and I didn't have like, another source of income I could go to. So I was just in that space being like, when am I going to quit? How am I going to quit? Like knowing I would eventually, but also afraid that I just never would, you know? Yeah. And then this guy came in and put his hand on my ass and I was like, I'm out. I am done. And it was sort of a like freeing thing. It's like, I I was so angry and I was like, I'm done. And I wrote the letter like on my little, like, pad behind the bar like I was like dear Brian fuck you you know like I wrote the draft of that thing <laughs> yeah. while I was still working yeah because you had his name from his I had his card. name from his credit card yeah. and I sent an email to my uh, manager that night that was like I don't know exactly my notice but consider this like I'm quitting uh I'll figure out the timeline soon but know that it's really happening there was an incident tonight um it'll be in the report you know like I told my manager on staff and I emailed my general manager and then, ironically, before I headed into work again the next day, I sat down and wrote the letter and put it on Facebook. And truly, it was like, my friends will think this is funny, and <laughs> like maybe it'll help me get a job. Like right. you know, my friends will like put see it. it. It just puts it onto the ether. I literally, you know, was like, this will get 60 likes. You know, you're like yeah. sort of thinking like how many people will this reach? I'm but like, this will is mention fu- it to their friends. My friends, it'll, it'll be on my friend's radar. It'll help me like suss out new opportunities. And also for me, it was like, this is making it official. Like I needed to say out loud, right. like I'm fucking done. I can't take it back. I hope cussing is okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's just who I am. Great. <laughs> and, and I put it out there and I, I think I even had like hesitation where I was like, you know, 
I'm now like a full-blown angry feminist, but I like, <laughs> you know, I was a baby at that point. It was still like, I've always been like a guy's guy, a girl, whatever, <laughs> can't even say it right anymore. <laughs> but I, you know, been like chill and like, I have more guy friends than girlfriends and that's a whole other evolution. <laughs> but I was sort of afraid to be like public about that being infuriating because it's not like chill to be like, this guy put his hand on my ass and it's not okay. Do you know what I mean? Like that wasn't... It was also a step into that side of my personality, and it was just me being like, like I remember hesitating and being like, I wonder which of my friends will think this isn't cool, and was like, fuck it, and hit send. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I had those reservations, but the reservations were so much about my very intimate friend group. And then I got on the train, and I got off the train and got like checked Facebook, and it already had like hundreds of shares. It was instant, and I was like oh, this is going viral. Like, I had gone viral at, like, some comedy videos I'd done before, so I knew the momentum, like, hits fast. That's um, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and so by the time I got to work, I think it had, like, a couple thousand shares, maybe? Maybe not quite. Maybe, like, a thousand or something. Like it, But it, it caught fire quickly. <laughs> I sat down with my manager, and I was like... I might have created so. a little bit of a headache for you. Like, this is probably going to be on your radar. You might get a phone call. You know, like, I didn't quite know what the fallout was going to be. And uh, I, sh- I, like, told him that I'd written this letter and it seemed to be going viral and that I tagged the guy. It was a- Or I didn't tag the guy. It was about- I gave his name and one right. of my friends had tagged him in my comments, like, found him instantly and was like, this guy? So, like, I knew he that word had gotten back to him. Yeah. And he was like, oh, okay, we'll deal with that. It was like very understanding. And That's then good. the first press phone call I got was from New York Post, which I was like, oh, no, no, no. Because all I could see was like, angels, ascrat. Like their headlines are so sensationalizing and stupid. <laughs> and they called me and left a voicemail. How these people get your phone number, who knows? But they got my phone number. They called me and they left a voicemail that said, we just spoke to Brian Lederman and he's... He's he he says he didn't touch you. Care to comment? And I was like, this is so <laughs> stupid. It's like from a movie. Oh, it's so they're so movie. They they love the idea of themselves over that publication. It was so stupid. <laughs> uh, so I called them back and I was like, is there any chance you won't run this? I really think this has run its course and I don't. You know the letters out there, but I don't want any more attention around this. Like I don't I don't need to attack this guy and I don't you know, need any more attention. And they were like, isn't this what you want? Like to put it out there and like change the world. And I was like, I did the impact I needed. I don't need to be in New York post. And they're like, well, it's kind of already happening. And I was like, well, that's not true, but I see that I don't have control in this situation. You can write about it if you want to write about it. Uh, and so I like corrected some things that they, you know, they said, he said he didn't touch me. And I was like, he a hundred percent did. And I gave them a sort of play by play. And they're like, and they sort of alluded to him being angry. They, they didn't say what he said, but they were like, he, I was like, you spoke to him also. And they're like, yeah, yeah. We called him first. And I was like, okay. Interesting. And they were like, he, he's uh he's pretty angry. And, um, I was like, great. And then for the next, they also asked if they could, I, this is important to include cause it's a shitty thing for them to have done. They asked to use a photo. I absolutely said no. They called back again and were like, are you sure about the photo? And I was like, you may not use a photo of me. They called all of my headshot photographers, like all of the pictures of me online. They called all of them and asked if they could, they called or emailed them and asked if they could use, asked for photo permission. And one of my stupid photographers didn't ask what it was for. Just was like, oh, Laura got something and just said yes. Oh, no. It was fine. I didn't actually care that much that my photo was in it. I just didn't want it to be. Um, And for the next 24 hours was, like, the worst part of it, like, because it really was blowing up. It was at, like, you know, it really struck fast, and then it was, like, a trickle down after that. Um, And I think it was was in the thousands of shares at that point, and... uh, other press had just started to reach out, but I was really nervous about the New York Post article because I knew they would be sensationalizing and I knew he was angry and I was afraid I had the wrong guy. Meaning, 
I was doing my own like apology work where I was like, I'm wrong or he's not that bad or he's like a family man and he's going to like make me look bad by handling it well, you know, like, or like, or also I was like, maybe he was having a bad day and just did a shitty thing once and I shouldn't have called him out on it. You know, like maybe it was a slip on his part and my response was disproportionate. And then the article came out and he called me a fucking cunt (laughs) And he said, I would never work in this town again. And he just was the straight out of central casting caricature of an asshole. And I breathed the like deepest sigh of relief because I was like, he is exactly the guy that I experienced and met and dealt with. Like I wasn't off base about who he was and how he treated me. So that was just was like, it was nice not to be like, whoops, I called out someone who didn't deserve it, you know? Right. Um... And also, he called me a fucking cunt in print. Oh my God. So, like, any concerns I had... Like, I was talking to lawyers, because I was like, am I going to get... Su-? He also said he was going to, like... He he also called my manager a bunch and, like, repeated the joke. The So, the part of it is he put like, his hand on my ass. Like, explain himself? Yes, but, like, this man is so thick-skulled. Like, honestly, the only way to, like, explain kind of how this person is is compared to Trump. Like, he's cut from the oh same God. cloth, which is, like... He's before his just, time. <laughs> yeah. Well, just of this exact same part of the world. Do you know what I mean? Like, not. I don't even mean geographically. I mean, like, this is a stupid man who is overly privileged, who thinks that he has is somehow special because of whatever he has and is truly abusive to people around him because he can be. There, a friend actually found an article about this guy in uh, an assault and battery charge in Florida, like four oh years God. before this incident. So really, a, a bad guy. Um, but he called your manager to repeat. Oh, he the called joke. my manager. He he was like, "You better fire her." My manager was, you know, who I already said was wonderful and supportive, and who also just for the fun detail is just like a sweet gay man. Like he's certainly not on the, this guy's side, you know. <laughs> He he was like, oh, we won't be doing that. Uh, and he was like, it's it's funny. It's a funny joke. Like, you to go with nothing on it. Like, that was the joke that he said. He was like, how, hand on my ass. Like, how about we get you to go with nothing on it? And he was like, get it? Because she's naked. Like, like, the issue was that, like, we didn't get the joke, you know? Oh, my God. Just so, so thick-skulled. Um, and my manager was like, no one's answering the phone except for me for the next week. Like, he screened all phone calls in case a guy called and very sweetly saved the printed um new york post article like i was like i don't want that anywhere near me and he was like i'm proud of you it was was so sweet um but was also a good reassurance so like the worst of it was just when i was terrified that like i had messed up right and then as soon as it was clear that i really had the culprit that i thought i did it was just noise. It was just a circus, you know? Like, I turned down a couple TV shows because it was sort of ridiculous. And, like, I did end up going on Meredith Vieira because they were late. They called me, like, weeks after it had happened. And they were like, we wanted to do a th- feature on your thing. And I was like, you're kind of behind. <laughs> like, I did all the press already. It's over. But I ultimately, I, was, I wasn't going to do it. And then I was at the bar, and this guy asked me if I came with a tip. And I was like... Uh, like I almost made him Google me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, "This is my name. I want you to Google me and like look and just see what I could do to you." Um, but um, I was like, "God, it's not over." So like, I went on Meredith Vieira just to like, I don't know, just be like, more, "I'm doing more work," whatever. Um, which was crazy. I'd never been to one of those like morning shows, and they're insane. Um, <laughs> and then. Uh, and then it just died out as quickly as it happened, you know? How bizarre. Yeah. There were, but there were opportunities that came out of it. I ultimately weirdly got a job with a tech company, like a tech recruiting company, uh, pretty quickly. Like, they just reached out to me and were like, do you want to work with us in some kind of, like, social media capacity? Because they just saw my thing and kind of Googled about me and just reached out on my website. And I was like, I- I'll take any job right now. And, uh, and then... David and the foundation came along not long after that. And I think it partly helped that he was like, oh, Laura's on a job. <laughs> She's available. She's available, you know. So definitely yeah. it was, a, I think you put it well, that it was like a big shift. Like it was a yeah. big transition for me. And the viral moment was just excess. It was just a strange 
strange thing. Um, but ultimately it was, you know, there were little dark things. There were a couple weird internet comments or like some really light harassment, but like, like trolling, I should say, not like, you know, Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately it was positive. There was such an overwhelming amount of support that any, any trolling was just like negligible. And it, I think was also like a big moment for me, like establishing myself as like a woman who ain't going to take shit no more. And yeah. there's a really powerful community of that. There's, you know, there's energy behind that in the women that I know and women that I've become even closer with since then. And it's sort of established me as that person for myself as much as yeah. for other people. So it was, it was exciting in that sense that I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm this kind of woman and don't mess. And I was able to empower myself and then also others in the process. Uh, and that was really meaningful, honestly, like the amount of people that were inspired by, or just you know, like women being like, shit, that's so cool that you did that. was like just really great. Yeah. Well, and the fact that it then comments like that keep happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a, or whatever. Like that's yeah, a, it's, it's it's a never-ending problem. It's 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 gonna take a long time to like really put a dent in that. You know, like ultimately, what I did was a drop in a big bucket. Yeah, a Me Too bullshit. But <laughs> but I did my part, and I will continue to do my part because it is it is an ongoing struggle. Good for you. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, change of topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's go. Um, what does your family make of you uh, choosing to be an artist for your career? Oh, I think they don't know what to make of it, you know? <laughs> Is uh, there anyone else in your family who's kind of creatively No, I, I was not fortunate to find my way to this industry through nepotism. I <laughs> wish I was. Uh, my dad is like a low-key musician. Like, he plays guitar at his church, you know, like he's a very, uh, in a private capacity, he is into music and mm-hmm. stuff. And my mom's like a crafter, but like no one in my family has any kind of artistic career ambitions, uh, nor has anyone. Um, there's, I have a cousin who sings, but not professionally. Like there's little smatterings, but nothing like do you have brothers and sisters? I have a sister. Yes, I have an older sister. She's a masseuse and was a teacher's aide and is like a healer of sorts. Um, she lives in a really small town in Colorado, so like cool. healers are something that are <laughs> just around there. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they don't know what to make of it. They, my mother is endlessly supportive and thinks that the world of me and thinks the world will unfold before my feet, uh, you know, Every time I'm like complaining about guy problems or whatever, she's like, he's probably just intimidated by how wonderful you are. Uh, like she's that kind yeah. of mom where like her rose colored glasses about me <laughs> are like a little out of control sometimes, but she's endlessly supportive. That's so sweet. Uh, and is comes and sees all my shows and is wonderful. My dad has a harder time with it. He's very like rational and um, worried about money and yeah. worried about stability and doesn't mean to, but asks about things in a way that is difficult for me. Yeah. You know, I... That's the way my dad is, too. Yeah. I did I did an episode of Orange is the New Black and kind of thought, like, this will chill him out for a minute. You know, yeah. like, I just thought, like, now he, he'll believe me that I'm an actor. It's something that's easier to understand. Yeah, it was like, this reaches yeah. him, so, like, it's relevant. And weirdly, right after it came out, he was like, so do you think you'll quit acting and I was like what interesting and he was thinking about this timeline that I'd completely forgotten about like I when I was in college I think I had a conversation with my dad at one point where he was sort of curious about how long are you going to give this thing if it doesn't work out like what period yeah and I was like I don't I don't know a decade you know like 
I was like, I'm not going to be just like waitressing when I'm 30, you know, like I'm 22 at that point. 30 seems so old, you know, <laughs> what do I know? But I thought that I, I just forgot about the conversation and he had sort of like logged it. <laughs> was like counting down, you know what I mean? Like he was sort of waiting for the birthday. moment to be like, <laughs> do you want to do something else? You know? And Oh God, it was so frustrating when he asked that because I wasn't even bartending anymore. You know, I was, um, I had my foundation job. Like I had achieved something which was really meaningful to me, which is that I only worked in the industry I wanted to work in. You know, I was in theater making a living, which is insane considering it's theater in particular. (laughs) Um, and he was like, so do you think you'll, and I was like, but it like, more than anything just speaks to his total lack of understanding about what this life is and what this industry is and that even honestly if I was doing movies and was making you know if I had academy awards maybe he'd feel comfy but I think he just is someone who lives with a certain degree of anxiety and I just have to contend with that you know but it's nothing to do with what actually makes me happy and what actually sustains me. So it's difficult conversations sometimes, but it's fine. And he does his best to support me and to like, you know, he loves me and cares about me a lot. So it comes from that place. It's just hard to hear the way it comes out (laughs) sometimes. So totally. I kept you for a while. Oh, let me check here how long we've been recording. Can you tell me a little bit about your upcoming show? Yeah, I was going to say, can I plug? (laughs) Can I plug? Um, Yeah, so this won't come out in time for our party. We're throwing a party on Sunday and Monday. Did you know this? I did. Good. I wish I could go, but I'm too pregnant. You're too pregnant. (laughs) That's a fair enough excuse. Um, So our next show is called Agnes. It's by Katya McMullen. Uh, Jenna Warsham's directing, and I think I mentioned this earlier. It's at 59 East 59. Mm Mm-hmm. It'll be September 8th to September 29th. Okay. I am in this one. I'm feel already feeling intimidated by the time commitment and energy that will go into that. But it's a beautiful script. It's hilarious and heartbreaking. And uh, it's, it's about a, a whole bunch of different relationships. But one of the central relationships is between a sister and brother. And the brother is a high-functioning autistic and it's probably about I play the sister and it's she's a little bit probably overprotective and and a little bit suffocating mm. for him and I think the play is about him coming into more of his independent power and also sort of a coming of age for him um and then also about some other like messy relationships in the play and I think what Katya has written really beautifully is this notion that though we talk about disability and autism and people on the spectrum being lower functioning in a, in a social context, we're all kind of terrible at it. You know, (laughs) what the play kind of points out beautifully is that although this person has a disorder, he's as functional, if not more functional than other people in the play. And Mm. that the intricacies of that are complicated and, some of our assumptions are pretty useless, you know. It's it's a really smart script that way, and I'm really excited about it. So, should be a great production. Come on down, to 59 <laughs> East 59. That sounds really really great. Yeah. Two quick questions. Mm-hmm. Then. Um, first, like if you are like in that dark place mm-hmm. of feeling uninspired or overwhelmed or whatever it is, are there concrete things that you reach for over and over again, like books you reread or music mm. you listen to or things you do that help you get out of it I'm not a very good like ritual person in terms of like books or things I reach for um there's certainly like song or like put on my favorite sad song and have a cry (laughs) sometimes a good cry is really what you need um I definitely have I have really great friends that I reach out to who are there when it's bad um for me also, I think a, a thing I do is I'll take like toxins out of my life completely, meaning mm-hmm. for me, not drinking com- can completely shift my outlook. So there have been moments when I've been like, wow, I am deeply unhappy. And even though I'm not necessarily drinking too much or a lot, like even if alcohol isn't really the culprit, 
taking it out of the equation just ups my uh, body chemistry in a way where I can get up in the morning with a fresher outlook. Um, And I, you know, I'm raised by hippies, so I have like supplements. (laughs) You know, I take my magnesium and I, uh, you know, B vitamins and stuff like, you know, like I'll maybe do like a detox thing because I think sometimes we forget how much of what we ingest we actually carry with us and even that little bump of like any advantage I can give myself in terms of my spirit my outlook and my energy is hugely helpful like I think I did two months without drinking in January February even more because it was part of March too and it was like a great like reset you know I was fine before that but was really feeling bogged down and gross and it's like it's actually a depressant exactly it's literally a depressant like we we don't think about it because being drunk is so fun, <laughs> but it really stays with you for like a couple days yeah. and long enough that if you take a few days between drinking and then start drinking again, like it just colors everything and it is a physical depressant. So that's my, that's my quickest fix that I would recommend to other people is cool. balancing caffeine intake and just cutting toxins out, <laughs> like especially alcohol, but other stuff too, you know, that can really yeah. like shift the darkness or at least like clear the clouds also birth control makes you crazy (laughs) i went off of birth control during a terrible breakup years ago and it was literally like night and day like i didn't realize how crazy that those hormones were making me i don't know why i needed to sneak that in but i'm I'm a big advocate of the non-hormonal iud what's that i'm glad you mentioned it it's something that's like so it's weirdly not talked not talked about like we know that it makes us feel crazy but when you're hormonal because of a birth control pill or because of those hormones, it feels so real. Well, and you're on it for so long. Exactly. You don't, you don't know what your base level is. Based yeah. on what. Yeah. I remember I, I was really worried when I first went on it because I was like in acting school and I was, I was very conscious of that choice. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm already, I'm already emotionally like a wreck. <laughs> yeah. I'm going through all these things. I don't want to take something else that's, that's going to make it worse. Yeah. And luckily it wasn't, it wasn't that bad for yeah. me. But then, then you just like after a while, you, you get don't, used you don't to know. it. Yeah. For you me, know what it is. I didn't notice when I went on it. Like I was like, I'm fine. I feel the same. Yeah. But I'm sure there was like, cause what it does is just amplify your reactions to things, I think. Mm-hmm. So when I was going through this awful breakup, I was like, crying in stairwells and I wasn't eating because I was anxious all the time. I was like losing weight because I was horribly anxious and like couldn't get through my day. And like, I'm not a terribly emotional person and certainly not to that extent. And I didn't recognize myself. Hmm. And then my mom was like, what are you still doing on birth control? Like she wanted me off of it from the beginning, but she was like, get off of it. I was like, what if he takes me back? You know, (laughs) that stuff. But I went off of it and within like a couple days was like, oh, Oh, I'm myself again. And I still was sad and had work to do on whatever, but was like, I could get through my day. But there's there's a non-hormonal IUD that you said that you like. Yeah, I have Paragard. Yeah, I've been very happy with this. I'm not even being paid for this, but I should be because I have plugged Paragard to so many women. Well, and then I finally went off of birth control to actually get pregnant. So now I'm dealing with other hormones. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know (laughs) which way is up. (laughs) Yeah. Without extra hormones. Uh, I'm sure that's um, a lot, yeah. Anyway, anyway, sorry for that tangent. No, but, I liked um, it. The last question is, have you seen anything recently of any art form that you want to recommend? Oh, God. Friend stuff. That's or... a great question. I'm always so bad. People always want play recommendations, and I'm like, what have I seen? <laughs> or it can um, be a little more general if there's like a playwright who, in general, you're excited about their new work that someone should check out or whatever. Art recommendation... I'm, I know you're super busy right now, so you may not be seeing things. I will say... Oh, this isn't like... Where I just went to the portrait gallery in D.C. for the first time. That's sort of dumb to plug, but... Because, like, That's I a don't cool know. Museum. But there's a, a room there with a number of artists. It's interesting. They put this room together. It's the same um, style of work, but all different artists. There's one that I think is particularly famous that is a picture, it's a, it's a portrait of Thomas Jefferson, but ripped off, and underneath is a, a beautiful portrait of this woman of color. Presumably, maybe, I've been told it's Sally Hemings or it's not, um, hmm. but the idea is that it's, it's a portrait of that uh, 
I'm just rape, <laughs> you know, like that relationship and that, um, you know, underrepresented yeah. person is stunning, just really stunning work. Um, that's one thing. Obviously, I saw the Obamas when I was there. So Maybe jealous. cried a little. <laughs> um, and also, I'm I'm on this like kick for Phoebe Waller Bridge, who did Bridges Bridge. I think it's just one bridge. Um, she wrote and starred in Fleabag, this Amazon series. Have I haven't you seen, seen this? it? But I've heard such good things it's about it. It's stunning. It's so good. It's um, she does these direct addresses. She'll be like having sex and talking to you, <laughs> like and in the camera, like while she's getting plowed, <laughs> as it were. Uh, and it's this like raunchy, really funny, brilliant concept. Like it's just like a really well put together show that I th- I've heard. I think she built from like a fringe one woman show or something oh cool she's a british actress who's brilliant as an actress in her own right and who has crossed over into writing and is crushing the game um so she did that show and then wrote killing eve which is the newer show out with sandra oh Oh, which i also haven't seen yet but i really want jodie comer um good for her yeah she's just a brilliant female mind she writes this stuff that's like it's sexual and it's raunchy and it's violent and it's dark and it's so smart. Like it's all she's always just a little bit of a step ahead of you. And so she's one of my favorite like writer showrunners cool. now um, in the world. So yeah, that's what I'll plug. Um that's amazing. I'm gonna give one more plug so we didn't get to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Is that you did that is it a web series called Unicorn Land? Unicorn Land. It is. It's a digital series. It's, it's on a, Vimeo at vimeo.com slash unicornland. I think you can just watch it there. Yeah, we didn't get to talk about it, but it's so good. And I, Thank you. I highly recommend people go take a look. Thank you. Really proud yeah. of that work. I think it's an exciting, like, inclusive, eye-opening uh, story, you know, yeah. for, a, for a digital series. It really tackles a lot, and I, I think it came out pretty well. We're really proud of it. So thank, thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> well, thank you, Laura. This was so cool. Thank you, Leah. This was wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of the Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thecompasspodcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content, and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.